This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor David George Haskell. David is a Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South. He's also a Guggenheim Fellow. I spoke to David about his book, The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. I'm going to head to the phone and speak with Professor David George Haskell, who is a Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South. He's also a Guggenheim Fellow, and he's written a book called The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. It's out through Black Ink in Australia. And uh, David has written previous books and a very well-known book um, that you may be familiar with called The Forest Unseen, and that was published in 2012. It won a number of awards, and uh, Professor Haskell has published a number of essays, op-eds and poetry, as well as scholarly research. So I'm very pleased now to welcome him on the phone. Hello there, David. Hello, Amy. It's a pleasure to join you here by phone. Yes, it's great to finally speak with you and hear your voice. And thanks so much for joining us today from uh, the United States of America. Yes, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be with you. And I'm, right now I'm sitting in, in Colorado. Out of the window, I can see the uh, snow melting off some of the foothills. So we're still in the tail end of winter here. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, I was just going to ask you, where, where are you based? Um, it's interesting that uh, you say Colorado. For those who aren't familiar with Colorado and the landscape, um, you just painted a beautiful picture. But what are some of the other elements of Colorado that you find so um, stimulating and inspiring? Well, Colorado is, situ- is a state situated right in the centre of the country. Uh, it's, a, it's a long, long drive to any coast from here, so it's not a good place for swimmers, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, unless you can find the pool. But there's a, the Rocky Mountains run down the, the centre as a big, almost like a spine down the centre of the United States. And where I live in, in Boulder, uh, Colorado, the mountains rise up from here. We're on this very high plain. It's from here out east. It's all flat. And then it goes up to mountains that are 14,000 feet tall. Uh, so completely treeless, totally covered in snow and ice for most of the year and in some years for all of the year. And then down on the plains here, we get more pine trees and so on. So the scenery is, is very varied. It's, it's very dramatic. Uh, there's not much oxygen as you get up into the mountains, so you get a good workout walking up there. And the, the trees here are just phenomenal, particularly in the lower elevations, the ponderosa pines, which have this, this beautiful piney smell mixed with some vanilla. Uh, just it's a gorgeous place to go to go walking. So so it's it's, it's truly a great place for scenery and for, and for getting outside and enjoying uh, time on on the trails. Sounds amazing. And uh, and there are many people who tune into this show who have a deep love of trees. And it's something that we talk about on this show a lot. And what I really enjoyed about your book was the all-encompassing description of trees 
as not just standalone, I guess, species, but as a part of a network in a forest or in an environment that really encapsulates all of our human senses. And obviously, based on the title, The Songs of Trees, you certainly have that auditory focus for this book. I wanted to ask you, what drew you into thinking about trees through the mode of sound and hearing? Yes. So, you know, the birds, bird song was my gateway into listening to trees. For many years, I've studied birds and bird song, both as a scientist, but also as a a naturalist and someone who likes to go out and get to know the neighborhood. And in doing that as a scientist and also as a teacher, I came, of course, to know each species of bird and for some species, individual birds by their voices. But when I was listening, I suddenly, it came to me, Every one of these trees also has its own individual voice. It's not just the birds or the mammals or people that have individual voices, but a maple tree sounds very different from a pine tree. A eucalypt with the wind blowing through it sounds extremely different from from an ironbark or an ash tree. So wherever we live around the world, we can just by tuning our ears in, we can come to know the particularity of trees. First, as a sensory delight, it's just really wonderful to have that knowledge and experience of our neighborhood. But also, and for me, this is even even more important, those sensory experiences lead into a, a series of stories. It helps us understand the physiology, the biology, the evolution of each tree, and in some cases, how the trees are very closely wrapped up with, with human lives as well. So the, the sounds of trees, for me, are... First of all, something to pay attention to in the everyday to enrich my life. And then second, what I mean by the song of a tree is the song has both an acoustic element, but also it has lyrics, it has a story, it has meaning, it has emotional context for for humans who, who hear it. So the songs of trees are the place where all of those factors integrate both the senses and the intellect and the emotions. Yes, and it really is um, just amazing the kind of descriptive language that you use when you're talking about the sounds of trees. And uh, I did get a chance to also listen to some of your sound recordings that's up on your website, which people can also look at, um, at dghaskell.com forward slash compilation. And uh, it certainly did when I was listening to those birds and um, some of the insects and the beetles that you identify, but also the rain and how the rain kind of amplifies sounds of trees it was amazing to think just how kind of unique each tree's sound was and also the interaction of insects and birds and other um, species and animals and fungi with that particular tree it was quite eye-opening to when you're listening to the sounds to kind of picture in your mind what's happening in these very very far-flung places uh, in the world that you visited and recorded these sounds at. I wanted to touch first up on the redwood and ponderosa pine, given that it is uh, from your home state of Colorado, and you write about it and the really fascinating elements of it, including the resin and this, as you've mentioned there, the smells that the tree puts out. Could you share with us some of the relationships that the ponderosa pines have had with their beetles and their insects because it seems like it can be a little bit of a love-hate relationship right exactly and it's um you know when i think of ponderosa pines i think of them in 
in two layers, if you like. There's the above-ground world, uh, where the Beatles and the resin and, and the people are. And then there's a whole other story below the ground. The tree is actually bigger below ground than it is above ground. The part that we see, though, of course, is, is the above ground. And I mentioned already that the Ponderosa pine has this absolutely gorgeous aroma. Some trees smell almost like walking into a bakery, this sweet vanilla-like smell. Some other trees, maybe those that have been struck by lightning or have been uh, wounded by insect attack, smell a little more resinous and bitter, almost with a touch of, of bourbon or, or whiskey there. So walking through the woods, sometimes I'll go up the trees and just give them a good sniff. <laughs> um, I expect other people think that I'm a little crazy about this, but when I get a chance to explain to folks on, on the trail, it's like, look, these trees are both signaling to one another, because in all those aromatic molecules that they're making, they're sending little messages to other trees through the air, saying, here I am, here's the number of insects that are on me, do you need to get ready for an insect attack or not by making more resin? So they're chatting to one another through this, this chemical channel. And then that, that conversation also is a vulnerability for the trees, because how do these beetles that love to eat the inside of the bark of the ponderosa tree, how do they find the tree? They also use their noses or the chemical receptors on their antennae and around, around their face to find the tree. And then if, if a tree is particularly aromatic and the beetles get on it, they, they take some of that aroma and absorb it into their bodies and then re-release it in a modified form that attracts other beetles in so they launch a mass attack. So through aroma, the tree is both protecting itself because of the low concentration of the resin defends itself from beetles, but it also is its Achilles heel, if you like. It's the way that the beetles find a way in and can launch a mass attack. And in years of drought, these beetles can wipe out entire mountainsides. So you're looking at a huge mountain that the year before was all green, covered in pine trees, and then after the beetles have been through, the entire forest has gone brown because they've killed every single tree on that mountain. And then, of course, that's very vulnerable to forest fire and we get as in australia we get enormous fires burning through here 10 20 30 100,000 acres burn, burning at a time and those fires have in colorado have increased by at least 10 times over the last few decades so here in colorado the trees tell these ancient stories about the connections between beetles and trees but they also give us a glimpse into the future if we don't do something about um, how we're uh, changing drought and temperature around the world, a future that, that is going to involve in a lot more fire burning through through natural woodlands. Ponderosa always has burned. It's, it's a bit like a eucalypt forest that every few years a, a fire off a, a fairly low intensity fire comes and thins things out. But what we're seeing now are these massive blazes that sterilize the whole forest down to the soil. All you're left with is, is sand afterwards. So that's the above ground network. Yes, exactly. Below ground trees are foraging for water. They send out these incredible root networks connected to fungi that are seeking out water from, from all around. They're just they're champion uh, harvesters of water in the, the dark, hidden, below ground world of the soil.
Oh, well, let's um, pick up fungi in just a second. Uh, before we finish on the ponderosa pine, I was struck by some of your language that you used when you were describing uh, a young girl who was in the forest and hearing the ponderosa pine. And she said, what's that huge sound? And you say that uh, the retreat song is huge. And you say, quote, a glance of wind sets the pines huffing. A modest breeze evokes an urgent urgent hiss, steam escaping from a dangerously pressurised valve. A gust is like a landslide, sand avalanching down a gully. A sound of this kind in the maple and oak forests of my home in the eastern United States would send me scurrying for cover, an eye on the canopy for snapping trunks and falling limbs. But here, the pines carry no such warning in their shouts. It goes on, and I was interested that you also say that the the needles don't bend and that they, they don't flex and that they're unmoved how do you experience that obviously you've really um, made it so evocative when you have written about it but what kind of makes that sound so loud and so huge to you yeah you know the of all the forests that i've experienced around the world the ones here in colorado the ponderosa forest are absolutely the loudest and if you're used to listening to forests in other parts of the world, it really is terrifying because normally when there's an, that much sound coming from a tree, it means that big branches are going to break down and, and crush you and so on, so you better run. Well, the Ponderosa, it turns out, its big sound emerges from its relationship with snow and ice. Unlike other pine trees that are adapted to rain and maybe soft snowfalls, these Ponderosa pines have to withstand very high winds, and also a lot of snow and ice. And to do that, they have needles that are extremely stiff. They're about five times tougher than most other pine needles. You get up to them and, and feel them with your hand, and it's like running your hand on a wire brush or some kind of really tough material like that, very spiky. The branches kind of bob up and down. The branches are springy, but the needles are incredibly tough. So when the wind blows through them, the needles just tear up the air. It's like a, a harrow or a bunch of plows running through the soil. The air is torn into all these turbulent gusts and, and eddies, which makes an incredibly loud whoosh. So when I'm out, particularly when I first came to these forests, I would find it kind of frightening, particularly when the wind picked up quite a bit. That This sound just made me feel very uncomfortable, like something very bad was about to happen. Over the years, though, I've come to understand, no, this is the characteristic voice of the forest. No need to be frightened. Just enjoy it. Yes, it sounds like it's so epic and perhaps it could be described as sublime. There's a long tradition of of people finding the sublime, which is something awesome and slightly terrifying that that humbles you to, to remind you of your place in the world, your small place in the world. And I do think not just the sounds of the Ponderosa, but our experience with almost all trees, whose lives generally are much longer than ours, whose bodies are so much more vast and interconnected than ours. There is something humbling and awesome and sublime in our relationship with them, if only we give them our attention. Mm. We can also just walk right past them and ignore them, but we lose such rich experience if we, if we do that. That's so true. And uh, I know that people often have that unspoken connection and feeling around trees, particularly when trees in a forest are so 
grouped together and interconnected and often growing at such tall levels that it does really feel quite awe-inspiring. And one of the other elements of the forest which is really very awe-inspiring is the relationship between trees and fungi. And you describe throughout the book, but in particular areas you provide more of a focus on fungi, and one of those chapters is around the balsam fir and you talk about roots conversing with fungi and sending chemical messages through the soil, creating a symbiotic relationship where the fungi grows towards the roots and replies with their own chemical ooze. And you say that nearly 90% of all plant species form below ground unions with fungi. So from your perspective, and given that it is mostly under the ground, but not always, because you also describe how there are fungal cells on tree leaves, but what are some of those really fascinating um, relationships and, and just how important can fungi be to some of these species of trees that you listen to? Well, when I was a, a student, we were taught that plants are individuals, that a tree is just a, you know, it's a, an oak tree or a pine tree just standing there, and one name was sufficient to describe it. We now know that that's an utter illusion, and that a tree is a living network of many, many species. And the fungi are some of the most important members of that community. And as you point out, they're mostly hidden. We can't see them with our unaided senses, but they're extremely important nonetheless. The bacteria in the soil are also very important as well, and they're even harder to study because they're so small. And a tree is made out of a living network of relationships among these different species. For example, at the tip of a growing plant root, the tiny little hair cells there send out messages to the fungi, and the fungi respond back. There's a little conversation, a dialogue, a negotiation between these two kinds. And if, if the negotiation goes well, the cells actually fuse with one another. The, the cell membranes come and hug close together in the most intimate possible way. And from that connection, from that direct physical connection, there's then an exchange that sustains the life of both the plants and the fungi. The plants generally receive minerals and water from the fungi, things like phosphorus, a little bit of calcium maybe. Also water, I mentioned the ponderosa pines, that their, their root system is vastly extended by connection, connecting into the, the fungal network. The fungi are really good at getting out into the soil and dissolving away tiny little particles of minerals and sending them back to the plant. What the plant gives the fungus is what the plant is good at, and that is harvesting the energy in sunlight and using it to weld together CO2 molecules into sugars and other molecules like proteins and, and so on. So the fungus is giving minerals and water. The plant is then re reciprocating with foodstuffs like sugars and proteins. So there's, there's this back and forth relationship where each partner is doing what it does best and helping the other one out uh, in its area of weakness. We now know that the exchange goes even further than material though. Information also flows through this below ground network. If one plant is attacked by insects, somehow that information, probably through a chemical signal, gets down into the roots. The roots send, send it to the fungus, which lives in the soil. 
and the fungus sends it to the neighboring plant and the neighboring plant asks over further away from that. So the plants are in conversation, are in connection with one another below ground and that helps them prepare for the attack of arriving insects or for drought or for other assaults that, that they may, might experience. So below ground, in one, just one teaspoon of soil, there are as many cells as there are in the human brain and probably as many interconnections as well. And so, well, I wouldn't say that the soil is exactly like the human brain. Our brain is very centralized and organized. The soil is much more diffuse. There is a kind of interconnected intelligence there that helps the forest, the trees in the forest, all the other organisms in the forest adapt themselves to this place to deal with the rigors of, of drought and fire and flooding and the um, problems that the insects and diseases bring with them, the, the competition that, that happens among plants for sunlight, all of that is mediated and negotiated through these below-ground cooperative relationships. And then in the leaves above ground, when I pluck a leaf from an oak tree or, or a needle from a pine tree, my senses tell me, oh, well, this is obviously just a plant here. Well, my senses are deceiving me because if I could look inside the leaf in that very thin area between the upper and lower surfaces of the leaf, there are dozens and dozens of species of fungi, hundreds of species of bacteria that help the plant in its physiological functions. If you get rid of them, the plant can't defend itself from, from insects nearly as well or from invading pathogenic fungi. They can't resist insects as well either. And so the leaf which seems to be just a plant structure, is actually a networked community. And fungi are a very important uh, component of that, of that community. And I should say that we understand the edges of this, but most of it is a mystery. We've only recently discovered these vast numbers of species living on and in plants. And so the next few years are going to be really exciting as we, as we uncover more of the details of these interrelationships. All of this runs parallel to our understanding of the human body, which is also a living network of a, of a different kind than a tree. But our skin and our gut are also made healthy through relationships with the bacteria, in some cases the fungi, that live on and within us. Without them, we get very sick. So we too are, are living communities. That's a really great point and a great parallel to draw. And um, it's interesting that similarly with humans, we've only just begun to understand the role of our microbiome. And as you say, the, the fungi and the bacteria that exists within our stomachs, our guts, and elsewhere in our um, mm -hmm. systems. One of the elements you I want to pick up that you've mentioned is the soil. And I've often in my discussions when we talk about native forest logging and how uh, it should not proceed and obviously there's many reasons why it shouldn't but one of them is that we often highlight the fact that trees store carbon and they are very effective at storing carbon whereas um, there's another element to that and I was really fascinated that you wrote soils in boreal forests hold three times as much carbon as all the forest tree trunks, branches, lichens and other above ground life combined. How is that the case? So in the boreal forest, which is, which is the band of forest that runs all around the northern hemisphere, so most of Canada, parts of northern Europe, and then all across the north of Russia, Siberia, and so on, it gets less attention than the tropical forests do, but it's in fact 
as big a, a store of, of carbon, or, or depending on whose study you, you believe, a close second to the tropical forest. So this is a very important player in global carbon budget, which is, of course, one of the things that's going to determine what our climate is in, in future. And the boreal forest, because it's so cold and wet for most of the year, things don't decompose very quickly. So when needles fall to the ground, they tend to linger in the ground, but not decomposed for many, many years. The roots that, that die after they've extended out into, into the soil also persist over years and years. So a healthy forest will, bit by bit, act as a, an increasing carbon store, just building up these massive layers of carbon in the soil. And you can hear this when you walk through the forest. It's very spongy. There's no hard slap of your feet on, on, on dry ground there. It's like walking on the softest mattress you could imagine. Sometimes your footfall is almost completely inaudible, spongy, soft. And then because of the, the lack of evaporation and the abundant rainfall, they're also very boggy places. So you walk from the forest, sometimes your foot sinks down into a whole load of wet moss, and then you're back onto the forest, soft forest soil. So this acts as an enormous store of carbon, and one of the concerns is that forest fires and the drying out of the forests in the boreal region is accelerating. There are more and more fires and things are getting drier. But some of that big store of carbon could then be released back into the atmosphere. So that's one of the concerns moving forward. Biologically, it means that the soil is the place where much of the action happens, where the trees have to struggle with one another to figure out who gets the nutrients. And what determines the, the winners in that struggle is who can be the best cooperator with bacteria and fungi below ground. So the hidden world of the soil is where the great dramas play out of ecology and evolution, especially in the boreal forest. Yes, it's so interesting to think that. And also, you need to certainly expand your mind and be open when you can't physically see a lot of what's happening underneath the ground. Although yeah. we do know that it is happening, um, it would be great to know one day when um, science advances what why exactly things are happening as they are. One of the other fascinating chapters in this book is um, around a kind of far-flung place to many of us who may not have had the chance to visit um, and that would be in Ecuador and um, one of the quotes that I felt summarised the kind of relationship that local Indigenous peoples had to their environment was um, this and you highlight I guess the philosophical issues and tensions that exist in a Western concept of nature. You say, because life is network, there is no quote-unquote nature or quote-unquote environment, separate and apart from humans. We are part of the community of life composed of relationships with others, so the human-nature duality that lives near the heart of many philosophies is, from a biological perspective, illusory. And uh, it seems like when you describe the phenomenal sabo tree uh, near the Tipitini River in Ecuador, that that really does uh, encapsulate what you've just written. Yes, the sabo tree is one of the giants of the Amazonian rainforest. It's a tree that takes sometimes 20 or more paces just to walk around its base. Its crown sticks above the crown of all the other trees in the forest. 
and that crown is filled with other species. There are fig trees that grow up in the crown of the sabo tree. And then in the fig tree, there's another tree that grows on that. And then on the branches of that third tree, there are orchids and sometimes even little cacti and succulents growing up there, depending on whether it's on the south, north, the wet, or the shady part of the, um, of the tree. So this tree is an incredible living community, and it's being deeply connected with the lives of all the indigenous peoples of this region, the people that I spent some time with and interviewed, the Warani, count the sabo tree as the tree of life in in the creation story because this is a tree that that both symbolizes and in fact is a concrete manifestation of the interdependence that all life has in the forest that's true for the lives of the trees the orchids the birds and the people so when Western philosophy arrives in 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 places like this it really has a hard time un- understanding or connecting to the reality of the forest where the individual is always an illusion we only live as individuals in relationship with others so we need a philosophy of of so-called nature that doesn't place nature outside and apart of humans but regards ourselves as as part of this community of life and that's i think part of the unfinished business of the darwinian revolution is that darwin taught us that we're all kin to one another. When I look at a tree, I'm quite literally looking at my brother and sister there, often both, because trees are often hermaphroditic. You have to go back a billion and a half years, maybe, to get to our common ancestors, so we're pretty distant cousins, but we are cousins nonetheless. We are blood kin to every other living being in the communities around us and and around the world. We're also ecologically connected because of course every mouthful of food every breath of air that we take comes from the work of other species Uh, the oxygen coming from forests and from the oceans food coming from the living soil and from plants and and animals of course so our philosophy of nature needs to be one of inclusion and of belonging rather than of separation and unfortunately too many um not just in in the west but but there is a very strong tendency of this in the West is to put humans outside, to say, well, humans are special. We're the only ones with a soul. We're the only ones that have ethical responsibility. We're the only ones with minds and intelligence. And I think all of those notions are imposed from the outside. And from a biological point of view, I think they, they really don't hold up to the experience either of modern science that has discovered that that life is all about interconnection, or from the various forms of knowledge from cultures that have deeply belonged to a landscape, whether that's in Ecuador or in Victoria, Australia, or in in Russia, or up in, in northern Canada. The cultures that have lived in close relationship with forests understand that humans cannot go it alone, that we belong within the community of life, not as outsiders. Yes, exactly. And you do talk about the Warani people who have lived in the Western Amazon for thousands of years and their relationship with the Sabo tree, which is considered um, the tree of life. I just wanted to, before we finish, just quickly pick up on one of the fascinating parts of the Sabo tree, which is a bromeliad, if I've pronounced that correctly. And you write that uh, the bromeliad can contain four litres in the gaps between 
between the base of its leaves, a breeding site for frogs and hundreds of other species, one hectare of forest carries 50,000 litres of water in treetop bromeliads, much of this volume pulled along branches of the large emergent trees. The Sabo is a sky lake. I mean, that is pretty wondrous. It is, and it's a, it's, you know, when I've visited the Amazon forest, I have come away just utterly stunned by the diversity of the place and, and the, you know, the, the fact that there are lakes quite literally held up in the sky by the plants growing on these enormous trees is one element of that. Wherever you dip your hand or sniff your nose or, or cast your eye, there are thousands and thousands of species all interconnected one with another, and that's one of the marvels of, of tropical forests. That's true of tropical forests around the world, certainly the tropical forests in Australia. I mean, whether it's the, the more temperate tropics of the beaches um, in the Gondwana forests or further north, uh, the, the tropical forests um, up in the northern part of, of Queensland, same levels of extraordinary diversity and, and ancient interdependence among the creatures of, of the forest there. So the, so the Amazon is a particularly a vivid example of that because it's such an enormous forest of, of certainly such great biological diversity, but the stories are not at all unique to that place. They apply to tropical forests worldwide. Indeed. Before we go, in terms of your sound recordings and your field recordings, it's so fantastic that you've um, shared them with people on your website and uh, it's great that people can really have that sensory dimension to the book when they are reading it. If you had to pick one of your favourite sounds from your field recordings, what would it be? That's a very hard question. So um, for me, the the sounds that are unexpected are the ones that are most intriguing. And so one of the uh, sounds that I recorded actually with a hydrophone on a beach is the sound of water moving around the roots of a palm tree as the, the rising sea levels erode this tree from underneath. That cast my imagination into the drama of the roots of trees living in this very challenging uh, environment on the on the uh, on the coast. Another recording is one that I made actually with a an electronic caliper. What I did was measure the diameter of a maple twig at the, at the end of a twig on a sugar maple tree in Tennessee. I put a device that measured how fat that twig was through the night and through the day over several weeks. And it turns out that the twig pulses. It gets fatter at night, and then it draws in. It gets sucked in during the day because water is flowing along it. Like sucking into a drinking straw, as water moves, it draws the the twig in. So the twigs have a heartbeat that pumps every 24 hours. The fat at night, thin in the day. Fat at night, thin in the day. And I turned this into sound by converting the measurements of the twig diameter into sounds that we can hear that you can then play on an electronic piano. So that's one of my favorites is to, is to imagine this great daily pulsing of the twigs all around me. And this is true of, of, of almost all trees. They all have this pulse that we can't see with our eyes. It's very subtle. We can't hear it with our ears. We can't tune into that wavelength of sound. But by taking measurements and turning them into sound, we open the human imagination into this really amazing pulsation that that surrounds us, whether it's a tree on the city street 
or tree out in an old growth rainforest, they're all doing this this uh, subtle beating of their of their uh, water movement uh, that's just causing them to expand and contract. I've got to say I've been smiling throughout our entire conversation and I can't wait to listen back to those recordings again. And uh, I really want to well, thank you, David, for chatting with us and being so generous with your insights and your passion. Oh, well, the insights come directly from the trees. I'm yeah. just a poor translator, but it's, it's a very great honour to be with you. And I, I send my best wishes to you and all your, all your listeners. I hope you'll go and enjoy the delights of, of Australia's trees, which are really of unparalleled uh, significance in in the world of conservation and just inc- the diversity of trees is just extraordinary in Australia. So I'm envious of the, <laughs> of the sylvan companions that you have there. Thank you so much, David, and I, I am grateful for your translation. Okay, thank you, Amy. I've been speaking with Professor David George Haskell. He is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South and is a Guggenheim Fellow. He is based over in Colorado where we've just been speaking with David and we've been discussing his book, which has just been re-released in updated form. It's a, a recent book that he published called The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors, and it's out today, the new version, out today via Black Ink. And I'm sure um, even though Readings has just closed its physical doors, there are so many bookshops that are still delivering and uh, in many cases free delivery. So um, feel free to open your mind and also check out um, David's website, which has fantastic recordings there at com. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.